The following sermon was delivered on April 4th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Mature Minister Part 2 on 1 Timothy 4, 14-16. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, surely I guess we will all agree that the last few months, inaugurations have been on our mind. A lot of inaugurations. Of course, there was the presidential inauguration with all of the chaos that went on around that. But we've had inaugurations of governors in various states. And of course, at the seminary, we had a very important inauguration as a Dr. Master was inaugurated as the second president of of Greenville Seminary. See, inaugurations are important. Now, last week, we talked about the competency that's necessary to fill certain positions. And we focused particularly on the competency with respect to the gospel ministry and other office bearers, the personal characteristics uh, that Paul marked out for Timothy that he was to have as he lists them there uh, earlier in our chapter to give... uh, to be an example to the flock in speech, conduct, love, spirit, faith, purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. And then in the diligent exercise of the function of office, when he says, until I come, give attention to uh, leading corporate worship, really, uh, reading scripture and preaching. So now he moves from competency to induction, so to speak, wrapping up this chapter that deals particularly with the work of the minister. As he's dealt with uh, the structure of the church in the two previous chapters, he, in this chapter, is particularly focused on the functions of the gospel minister and dealing with error in the habits of a disciplined and uh, nourishing himself and enduring, and then in how he is to express his competency. And so we come now to the conclusion of this section of Timothy, with this uh, double exhortation um, that we can summarize with these words in your bulletin, that all who receive divine office are to pay close attention to themselves and the cultivation of their gifts. All who receive divine office are to pay close attention to themselves and the cultivation of their gifts. Now, unpack this proposition backwards, so to speak. We'll first look at the mature minister must cultivate his gifts, and then the mature minister must guard his life. So in verses 14 and 15, Paul instructs us that the mature minister, the competent minister, must cultivate his gifts. Here again, these words. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. It begins this exhortation by reminding Timothy and us that at ordination, the man that's being inducted, inaugurated into office, receives gifts. Now, the word that he uses here is the word from which we get our word charismatic. It is the primary Greek word for gifts, gifts given by God. And, of course, they're divided into two categories. There's the extraordinary charismatic gifts, Paul deals with, for example, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, those gifts that belong in a very peculiar manner to the apostolic age and now have ceased. But then there are the ordinary gifts that he's given to the church 
in every age, as, he as Peter mentions, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. For the extraordinary gifts of the apostolic age and the ordinary gifts that belong to the church throughout her history. Then with respect to the ordinary gifts, we can break it down further and say that they also are two categories. There's the gift of office and the gifts for office. So in Ephesians 4, he reminds us that the exalted ascended Christ has given gifts to the church from the great treasury that he's accomplished through his perfect redemption. But when he focuses on the gifts to the church, he focuses there on the gift of office. And notice in our text, Paul says to not neglect the gift, the gift that was given to you at ordination. And so office itself is a gift. It is not a uh, sinecure. It's not something in which we are to boast. It's surely nothing that we deserve. It is something that the divine Lord has given to the church. The office bearer is God's gift to the church so that in the church Christ will accomplish his holy purposes. But for the office bearer or any office bearers in the church to fulfill their office, they must have gifts. Notice he says the gift within you. So yes, it's the gift of office, but with that gift of office has come those gifts given to the man to equip him for the fulfilling of that office. Those gifts that Paul spells out, we've looked at them before in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 6. And these, this list, I think, encompasses all that Christ has given to the church. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I've said to you before that um, all of these gifts must belong to the minister. At least six of them must belong to the ruling elder, and at least three must belong to a deacon. And so when a man is being prepared by the Spirit of Christ for office, he's working these spiritual qualifications in him, it's also working in him these necessary gifts, a further part of the competency of the office. Now Paul reminds us that these gifts were bestowed, this gift of office was bestowed at Timothy's ordination. He says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Now, in Timothy's case, his gifts and calling were recognized uh, in a supernatural manner. As there at the church, when Paul decided to bring Timothy with him, the Holy Spirit was testifying through prophecy that he was to be set aside for this office of evangelist, which was a special apostolic helper in the New Testament church. And the Spirit did that uh, in extraordinary ways. We read the case of Jeremiah. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, even though Christ himself has appointed uh, Paul as an apostle, now the Spirit led the church to 
to send Paul and Barnabas out as the first missionaries to the Gentiles. And that was done occasionally in the New Testament church. But still today, when a man goes into office, he is put there by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit just works a bit differently, as we see, for example, in Acts chapter 6, as the church is faced with the crisis with respect to uh, material needs and the widows in the congregation and the Spirit leads them for this office, and the, the apostles lay down the qualifications. But then notice in verse 5 of Acts 6, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So we see that even in the apostolic age, in the case of Timothy, in the case of these deacons, that the Spirit was working in the congregation uh, to recognize that he was raising up particular men to serve the church. Now, the Spirit does that in the first place by giving the man, as I said, the spiritual uh, qualifications necessary for office, as we've seen them in chapter 3 and reiterated in those six or seven things here in this chapter. And then tested with respect to competency, again, as we saw last week, that he has the gifts for ministry. He, he's able to do this ministry. So as a man recognizes in himself, as the elders around him recognize these things, and they help him develop those things, well, eventually he trains, and then there will be a congregation that will recognize um, this man's gifts and character. And the presbytery will confirm that, and he then will be called but he's being called by the Spirit of Christ. For this is the way that Christ operates now in his church. Remember in 1 Timothy 3, a good thing to desire the office. It often begins in a man's own affections and desires. Other times, as I said, somebody would go to that man. As people came to me when I was a teenager, a new Christian, and even then was challenging me about ministry. Or the session will pick out a man in the church and say, we'd like to test you. And perhaps early on there wasn't a desire, but those things come together at some point. And this desire develops. That's the work of the Spirit. Man grows in godliness. It's the work of the Spirit. His gifts begin to develop. And that is the work of the Spirit. This all comes to head now in what Paul describes as, I'll summarize it, as ordination. Laying on of hands by the presbytery. The act of ordination is not simply a tradition that is performed by the church. The act of ordination, in fact, has been appointed by the triune God. I just this morning in my devotions read of Aaron and his sons being consecrated. They were set aside. They were ordained through the means that God had appointed. We see prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Covenant being anointed and set aside. And then we've already seen the examples here in Acts chapter 6, um, Acts chapter 13. The case of Timothy, as Paul mentions it here, and he mentions it again in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, where he reminds him, in verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God. That's that gift of office which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
So as the church has recognized the work of the Holy Spirit in calling this man into office, Christ himself doing that by the Spirit, it's under Christ's authority that the elders in the church lay hands on a man, and through that, Christ separates that man into office. Here, particularly the office of teaching elder or minister, but just as well the office of ruling elder or deacon. Notice as well that it must be an act of the plurality of elders. That's what this word presbytery means. The word presbytery is the plurality of elders. We all know these people in cousin churches around the South that suddenly they're in the ministry because folks in the church decided they should be the next preacher. Uh, that's not how it works in the Bible, is it? Well, this whole process is going on of prayer and examination. And it comes to this wonderful climax now where a group of elders around a man who kneels on the floor and they put their hands on him and pray that the Spirit of Christ will set him apart to this office. And something extraordinary occurs at that moment. Yes, the gift of office is given to the man. and That's very important. But the gifts that Christ already given the man are going to receive now a new unction. As he set aside a new effectiveness, a new power, and perhaps a greater, greater, wonderful spiritual function will come on him at that moment of his ordination, at this gift of office. And some here this evening are ministers, others are preparing for the ministry. You need to know that this is a wonderful thing that God does because you're going to be discouraged. Trust me, okay? If you don't trust me, ask Dr. Buchner. Uh, you're going to be discouraged. You wonder, what in the world am I doing? And the Christ would have you come back to the fact that He, He sets you aside to this ministry. And He said, He will never leave you or forsake you as long as you pursue that ministry according to His holy will. It's a glorious comfort that Christ gives to the men that He sets. And it's just as true for elders and deacons in the service of the church. Now, the exhortation here, though, is not, what do you do with these gifts? Notice how he begins. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with hands. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. There is a twofold exhortation, both negatively and positively. It begins negatively. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Of course, we have a saying, um, if you don't use it, you lose it. And that's very true. It's very true with respect to the work of the church and the office that Christ has given to us in the church. There's no place for coasting, you see. I've been a Christian for 62 years. I've been a minister ordained almost 50 years this summer. And unfortunately, I could tell you many, many horror stories of the coasting minister. You don't have to be old. This is often why men after five years go to another church. You know what they preach? They preach the sermons. They preach it for the first five years. And the rest of their life now, they're simply on coast. And they've got it made, they think. Or they get older. And yes, you get weary. And then suddenly you just begin to slack off and... Uh, you don't prepare the way you used to prepare, and you don't pray the way you used to pray, and you don't 
teach and preach the way you used to teach and preach. Paul says, do not neglect this gift of office. It is a gift from the triune God. Not something to be taken for granted. And it's for his church. And then the gifts that accompany that call and ordination. We must not neglect them. And so he moves now to the positive. And he says with respect to not neglecting the gifts, rather, take pains with these things, be in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. It's like an athlete in training. It takes pains. It's a few hours in the, in the light of glory. Multiple hours in the gym and, and on the field and repetition and pain and cultivation of skills so that they actually are second in nature. Well, that's exactly how it's to be with us. Yes, the gifts are from God. The gift of office is from God. And the gifts that equipped us for office and that he uses an office are from God. But do you see here that they can be neglected or they can be improved? They can be improved. And so we're never to become content with where we are, with whatever degree of blessing that God has, has seen fit to give to us. No. He says, let your progress be evident to all. Now, you won't often hear me tell stories about myself, but this story is very appropriate. Uh, we were in California. My wife was on the phone with uh, a dear friend, wife of an elder in uh, Texas, and um, you know, you hear one of the phone conversations. So I hear this. Yes, but it's much better now. Now, they were talking about my preaching. I took it as a compliment. No, the point is, the lady on the other end, who God just saw fit to bless wonderfully her and her husband through my ministry, uh, was talking about it, but my wife, and how I thank God for this, he's better now. Now, she doesn't know I'm going to say this. You go to her after service and say, is he better than he was 20 years ago and 30 years ago? I think she'll say yes. Because I'm never content, you see. I'm never content. The Alberts are here tonight, told me they were taking some of my old sermons and digitizing them, and I shudder at the thought of what I preached to them 30 years ago. Uh, never be content and let progress be evident to all. And that's what I'm going to look for in you young men who are preparing for the ministry, even now to see you month after month, year after year, progressing and uh, improving in the cultivation of your gifts. This is what I want to see in uh, all of our graduates as they are there in the church and ministering, and all myself and all my friends in ministry. This is what Christ's church deserves. This is Christ's purpose in giving gifts, that we cultivate them and that we spend them in such a way that they improve and our progress is evident. But before the rest of you think this has no application to you, it's not just the ministers and office bearers that receive gifts, is it? Remember chapter 26, the communion of the saints and our confession of faith. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, suffering death, 
resurrection and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. You see what our fathers teach us here? Um, when I was young, as some of you guys, there was a fad going around the church called Body Life. It was all about gifts. Um, that's nothing new. It's just part of the Reformation heritage. The difference is there's not 30 or 40 or 50 gifts. You say, where's Waldo? Which one's mine? Those seven gifts in Romans 12 are the gifts that Christ has given to his church. And every one of you has at least one of them. Now, it's our responsibility as elders to help you discover your gifts if you don't know what they are. It's your responsibility if you know what you think it is to come and tell us and manifest those things. I've got a thing called a time talent survey sheet that we'll be using down the road to help you ascertain. Um, and so there's only these gifts, but then the gifts are pushed in, plugged into ministries as the Spirit leads us by what gifts He's given to us, the things that down the road they will do. But you understand that with your regeneration, you have at least a gift. And you are accountable to Christ, my friend, for using that gift, not neglecting it, or spending it on yourself when he says it's for the body, but actually improving in your use of the gift. We're not an island. Not one of us is an island in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is the cultivation of gifts. The second thing that Paul then deals here with respect to the mature minister is that he must guard his life. This last verse. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. It might be the weightiest verse in this entire book. Pay close attention to yourself. Take heed to yourself. As Paul speaks now to the minister. Guard your heart, particularly with respect to two areas, your life and your teaching. But notice where he begins. We're on the wrong end of this so often in our church exams and our presbytery exams. No, he says, take heed to yourself. Now, what does that mean? When we get right back to the qualifications laid out for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, or this summary that's given to us of, of how this young man is to be an example of the flock in love, faith, purity, spirit, uh, uh, speech, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. So that we are to know our hearts. We're to know our besetting sins. And we're to guard ourselves against those sins. And we are to keep close accounts with God. We are to use the means of grace to seek to mortify the sin that's within us and to grow in conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen automatically. Now, it's solely a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ alone sanctifies. But the Spirit who sanctifies uses the means that He's appointed. And those means are the means of grace, guarding our hearts, pressing after holiness. There's some fads that go on today in Reformed churches that say to pursue holiness is legalism. It's not legalism. It's the gospel requirement. The desire to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And above all people, the minister of the gospel must guard his heart 
Let's not allow the, the slightest crack there with respect to any practice of sin in his thought life or in his speech or certainly in his conduct. Take heed to yourself, to the pursuit of godliness, the conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously that applies to all of us who are called by the Savior. Pursue that sanctification without which no one shall see the Lord. And then he talks about taking heed to our doctrine. The word he uses can mean both uh, how we teach and what we teach, and I think he has both things in mind. To get back to gifts, how we teach, we are to take heed to that, to constantly cultivate the ability to communicate. It's all the work of the Spirit again, but we are to be the best communicators that we can according to the talents that God's given to us. But also, what we communicate. How do you take heed to your doctrine? Well, that begins uh, in your private devotions, where you're in the Word. Uh, seeking to know the mind of Christ, taking heed both to your heart and to your doctrine. When you're in your study, doing the hard part of prayerfully, diligently preparing sermons becomes easier to some and harder to others, and yet it must be done. And nobody's watching. You're accountable to no one except the Lord. You should be accountable to the one most you should fear. And then to grow in your grasp of truth to be studying for your sermons in preparation, but to be reading broadly, uh, to be going deeper into the truth of God's Word and to the broad range of literature that would make you a, a more competent minister of the gospel. You see, it's a lifetime work. A lifetime work. Our godliness is a lifetime work. Our pursuit of ministerial excellence is a lifetime work, and don't settle for anything less. And excellent. Just as we are called to perfection, to be holy like the holy triune God, we're called to excellence. We'll attain neither, but we will never get close unless that is something that we hunger and thirst and lust after and press on with heart, mind, soul, strength, all, all that we have. Notice that it is an ongoing thing. The command itself, take heed in the present tense, but so is not to be misunderstood, Paul says, persevere in these things. We don't take a vacation from the pursuit of holiness. You don't go off for a holiday and live like the devil because no one's around. You don't let down your guard. Again, my wife said something to me that's probably not very complimentary, but she said, you can never forget you're a minister. And that is very true. You can never, ever forget it. So you persevere in these things. You persevere in holiness and thinking about it and longing for it. And, and you persevere in your ministry and you're constantly thinking, how can I be better? What can I do more effectively? And then this motivation at the end of the verse. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And literally it is that you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And before the alarm bells go off, obviously the Apostle Paul is not talking about salvation by works. You need to understand the word salvation means much more than justification. Justification and adoption are one part of salvation. And that's all of God's grace. We in no way contribute to it. But sanctification, perseverance, and glorification, although all of God's grace are things 
that we must pursue. And when Paul says, you save both yourself and those who hear you, he is saying that your godliness and your growth as a minister of the gospel is going to be contingent on how apt you are, how careful you are, taking heed to your life and to your doctrine. Because if you are in Christ, you're not going to lose your salvation. You might backslide. And sometimes that condition will manifest itself in a minister. And there could be this temporary lapse, but it's only temporary. But the man who does not take heed to himself, the man who is not growing in godliness and developing the ministry, is lost, like any other person who refuses the commandment of Christ to seek holiness. And so what he's saying is, is that at the end of the day, in the first place, it is my eternal concern. It is your eternal concern as a minister or an office bearer that you do these things. We also know that with respect to the minister, there'll be a judgment. Paul refers to this judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he's dealing with the carnality of the Christians there in Corinth and their schism and party spirit. But then he, he talks about the work of the gospel and he says in verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and others building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he'll receive reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So there is an accounting coming to the minister. That ties into the next part. You also will save those who hear you. Now that is awesome, isn't it? In the proper sense of the term. That your spiritual well-being depends upon my spiritual well-being, my pursuit of the office that Christ has entrusted to me. Anyone else who will ever stand in this pulpit must have that desire above all desires, that first you are in Christ, that you're growing and prospering in Christ. What a grand reward it is then to be on that judgment day and be able to say to the Lord, here I am and those whom you gave to me. But then to hear the testimony, why did you not call us to Christ? Why did you not expose us in our sins? Why did you not challenge us according to the word? Oh, what a doleful time that would be. No, we do this because we can save you. In the same way. Not that this work justifies you, but it guarantees your sanctification and your comfort, and your solace, and your perseverance, and your final glorification. Now, if I'm to be that concerned about your soul, as you sit here this afternoon, I would ask you, are you that concerned about your soul? I know you know you have a soul. But how much do you think about your soul? About your relationship to God? 
about his will for your life, about your standing. Does your sin bother you? Are you happy to live with it as you are? Content with where you are in your life? Oh, if you sit here this afternoon and you have no concern about your soul, this ought to frighten you to no end. You have a soul that is immortal. It will not die. It will either live forever in the eternal presence of a glorious and beautiful God or will live forever in hell. But that destiny depends on even what you do today, how you respond today to the preaching of God's word, to the gospel call. If you're sitting here today and your mind is wandering, you're doing other things, you give the body language appearance, you wish you were someplace else, then you're in great danger. But if you're here knowing your wretched condition, and knowing there's hope offered in Christ Jesus, then flee to him. Have a soul. Be concerned about your soul. As a Christian, be concerned about your soul that you might grow in conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all who receive divine office must pay attention to their lives and cultivate their gifts. That applies particularly to us in the ministry, preparing for the ministry, but as I said, it applies to everyone here this afternoon. We are responsible for our lives before God. You're responsible for growth and holiness. You're responsible to be using your gifts, our gift, whatever it is, and how minimal you might consider it. It's been given to you for the sake of the church. It's your responsibility to use it then for the body. Now, as we've worked our way through this, we can be convicted and challenged, but now we're going to come to the Lord's table. Here we are reminded of the glory, God, glorious gospel. What John says in 1 John 2, that um, if you sin, you have an advocate. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself as the propitiatory sacrifice for his people. So that even in, as Christians, our sins are pardoned because of this perfect work of Christ. And this sacrament reminds us that he is this sacrifice. He's also a risen Savior. Because of that, there in him is power power to die to sin, power to become more conformed to his image, power more faithfully to exercise the ministry that he has entrusted uh, to us. And so it's with great joy and anticipation that we prepare now to come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.